0: Welcome to Teacher Zion Podcast. This is your host, Doug Hatton, recording from Independence, Missouri. Thanks for joining us today. This is the third episode of the podcast series entitled, Is Priesthood Even a Thing? If you haven't listened to part one or two, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them first. Back in the 1990s, near the end of a 40-day fast, while standing in the Kirtland Temple, gazing upon the four-tiered pulpits on each end of the assembly room, which were constructed to seat the presidencies of the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods, I felt the Holy Spirit grieving over that place. What a strange and unexpected experience that was. I had been in communion with the Spirit throughout the fast, so I was very much in tune with Him that day. Over the years, I'd seen plenty of photos of the interior of the temple. In fact, I even owned a book about the temple. So, nothing I saw that day surprised me, nor had I previously questioned any aspect of the temple. I had been raised in the church, hearing the stories of the marvelous experiences that had transpired there long ago. This was the very first time in my life that I had visited the temple. So I had been, up to that point, very excited to go. So please understand, when I came to stand in that place, it was with great expectation. I may even have secretly hoped to have my own spiritual experience in that sacred place. So it was quite a shock to my mind and heart when I walked into that assembly room and felt the Holy Spirit grieving there. While I did not yet fully understand the reason why, I felt the grief most keenly as I gazed upon the elevated places of the presidencies of the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods. What can I say? My weekend was kind of ruined. I had done all this spiritual preparation, only to have my expectations dashed regarding my first experience at the temple. Of course, my disappointment was nothing to me compared to the mystery I wanted to understand the Lord's grief, so this led me to begin pondering and asking important questions. This incident happened just a few short years after I was first ordained in the Church of Christ Restored, a breakaway organization from the RLDS Church that my family had joined. Previous to my calling as a teacher, I had given my life to the Lord. He had restored my soul after the rebelliousness of my youth left me in a pit of despair. Because of His mercy towards me, and because of the love and gratitude I felt toward God, I covenanted with Him that I would go anywhere He sent me, say whatever He gave me to say, and do whatever He asked me to do. I meant it, and He took me up on my promise. After giving my life to the Lord, I immersed myself in the Word of God, reading the Scriptures from cover to cover. I fully believed in God's Word and in His promises. I had no doubt that if I asked Him a question in sincerity and with pure intent, that He would be faithful to answer. It wasn't very long before I started getting into trouble with the authorities of the Church by simply taking God at His Word and doing as He asked me to. Believing that the church was a safe place for the children of God, and imagining that other priesthood would take the scriptures as seriously as I did, my heart was an open book, and I expected the very best of other men who served. While there were many wonderful friends and mentors in the church who came alongside me and provided invaluable support, I also experienced many hurts at the hands of some in high offices of the church. The last thing I ever want to do is upset anyone or do harm to someone's faith. By the same token, we must examine what our faith is truly in. If our faith is in men, or a prophet, or the priesthood, or the institutional church, our faith will inevitably be dashed upon the rocks. Nephi wrote, Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man. Time is short. And the holy spirit is pressing me to be bold so let me just ask a question here one that had burned in my spirit for decades a question i had always felt was too controversial to ask anyone but the lord one that only recently i began voicing out loud to people that i trust so if you don't mind please take a moment before i present the question and remove your restoration goggles or in other words, remove your LDS or your RLDS spectacles, or whatever background you come from. Remove that which is filtering everything through the traditions and the explanations that you were taught. Don't be in a rush to answer this question, but set aside the assumptions you may have for just a moment. Ready? Here's the question. What need is there for the ironic Priesthood under the New Covenant? We know from the Bible and the Book of Mormon that there are elders and teachers under the New Covenant, and we even read at one point in the Bible where they set aside men to serve as deacons. But I'm not asking whether there are priests, teachers, or deacons in the church. I'm not questioning that those are ministries that exist or may be a part of the body of Christ. What I am asking is, why do we imagine those ministries to be part of an ironic priesthood? Forgetting for the moment what Joseph Smith caused to be printed in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, go and search the New Testament of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Look at what Christ set up in his church in Jerusalem as well as with the Nephites in the Americas. Where in Christ's church do we find the ironic priesthood? Based on what we know from the Old Testament about the priesthood of Aaron, which had to do with animal sacrifices, why should we expect that this priesthood would continue after what Jesus did at the cross? I know this is a hard question for some of you to consider, and I know there's a whole lot of tradition crowded around it, and I understand that this may raise the hackles of any number of people. But before we go on, if you are currently ordained into an office of the Aaronic Priesthood of the Church, know that I am not questioning your ministry or your calling. I am simply asking the question, why do we imagine that your ministry has anything at all to do with the priesthood of Aaron, a priesthood which is only found in the Old Testament beginning with Aaron and ending with John the Baptist? Of course, we have the words of malachi three, 3 which say that the Lord will quote, sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This has been quoted in the church as evidence for the return of the Aaronic priesthood. However, Levi is not the same as Aaron. Levi is one of the twelve tribes of Israel. They are the descendants of Levi, who were set aside as a priestly tribe, without inheritance, to serve as ministers among the other tribes. Aaron was one of the many descendants of Levi. So while someone from the lineage of Aaron would also be a part of the tribe of Levi, Being a Levite doesn't make you a part or of the lineage of Aaron. In fact, only a small percentage of Levites would be descended from Aaron. Malachi is speaking here of the tribe of Levi and not Aaron specifically. Just as importantly, only someone specifically of the lineage of Aaron can actually hold the Aaronic priesthood, even as only someone descended from Levi can be a Levite. It is, after all, a lineal priesthood, and a lineal line of people. Again, the express purpose for the Aaronic priesthood was to minister in the temple, serving as mediators between man and God. These priests bore the responsibility of handling the offerings and the sacrifices required under the law. Since the temple was destroyed, and the offerings and animal sacrifices were done away with because of the work of Jesus, What is the purpose of having Aaronic priesthood under the new covenant? Furthermore, why would we imagine that men who are not lineal descendants of Aaron could step into a lineal priesthood? Let me read something from the Doctrine and Covenants that I find very interesting. But before I do, let me bear my unadulterated testimony regarding the Doctrine and Covenants. In the mid-1990s, I had a tremendous conversion experience where God, in His tender mercy, saved me and restored my health and well-being. While I had been raised in the RLDS Church, I had no real testimony of my own regarding the Church or the Book of Mormon, but what I did have was a firm testimony of the living God. I sat down with my Bible, and I read the whole thing, cover to cover, Each time I picked it up, I earnestly prayed for God's Spirit to teach me and show me the truth. He answered this prayer, and the Holy Spirit ministered to me in my readings. When I finished the Bible, I picked up the Book of Mormon, and I told God that while I knew that He was the God of the Bible, in truth, the only reason why I had previously thought I believed in the Book of Mormon was because my parents and my grandparents believed in it. I was born into the church, so it was simply our tradition to believe in that book. So I asked the Lord that his spirit would once again be with me as I opened this book. And I told him in all sincerity that if he said to toss the Book of Mormon into the fire, I would do so without hesitation. But as I opened the pages of that book and began to read, immediately I felt his spirit testifying to the truth of the words I was reading and he began teaching me from them, even as he had done throughout much of the Bible. Now some of you have probably already heard this portion of the testimony, but what I don't think I have ever shared on this podcast, which I have only shared with a few close friends and family over the years, is that when I next turned to the Doctrine and Covenants, I expected a very similar experience. After all, with the validation of the Book of Mormon, it seemed reasonable to expect the validation of Joseph's revelations. But what happened next was an unexpected roller coaster ride. Understand that at the time I was ignorant of any controversy regarding the Doctrine and Covenants. The RLDS Church fully embraced their version of that book. The three-in-one book of scriptures were the standard scriptures of the Church. This included the inspired version of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the RLDS Doctrine and Covenants. I had yet to be introduced to the Unity Movement where we would associate with brothers from the Church of Christ Temple Lot group and learn about the Book of Commandments or the changing of the Revelations. I had never heard about these things, so it was my expectation, after what I had just experienced while reading the Bible and the Book of Mormon, that my experience would be the same with this third book of Church Scripture. What happened was, especially in some of the earliest revelations that were printed in the Doctrine Covenants. I would sometimes feel that same Spirit of God confirming the truth of many of those things. But then I would turn the page, and upon reading another revelation, I might experience the stark absence of the confirming Spirit. My bosom would not burn. My mind was not enlightened. And I would just feel cold in my spirit. This happened increasingly the further along I read in the Doctrine and Covenants. And even more perplexing was that with some revelations, there seemed to be a mixed response from the Holy Spirit. In some things, I would feel a confirmation. My spirit and mind would find enlightenment in one paragraph, and then the confirming spirit would withdraw entirely in the next. I also found that some revelations would stimulate my intellect and seemingly entice me to ponder further on their mysteries but they had a very different spirit or feel to them than what I experienced with much of the Bible and especially with the Book of Mormon. Honestly, I wasn't entirely sure what the implications of this experience was except for the obvious that not all of the words in this book were true because the Spirit did not bear witness as he had done in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. What I did not know at the time was the why. Of course, this experience would later serve as just one of many clues the Lord would use to teach me regarding what happened to the church. Having now shared this experience with you, let us now turn to section 83 of the RLDS edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, or section 84 in the LDS edition. This is one of three revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that touches on priesthood. Once more, we find that Christ does not really identify himself as the one speaking. Rather, the point of view in the narration is that of the person reporting the information, referring to the Lord in the third person, and reporting what light and truth they have received. The foreword to this revelation reveals that it was received or written down over the course of two days. So this wasn't an experience where the Lord spoke through Joseph while a scribe wrote the very words of Christ as a spiritual gift was given in real time. This revelation was worked out in some way over time. Even so, as best I can recall, this was one of the revelations in which, when I first read it, I had sensed a mixture of truth as well as some other spirit at work, which raises many questions in my mind. This was given in 1832, but it does not appear at all in the 1833 printing of the Book of Commandments. It seems evident to me that while there may have been insight and inspiration for some of its content, that much of the wording and terms used were chosen by men and not the very words of God. However, there are parts of this revelation that I felt or sensed were true or that they contain truth. I will read one of those portions now, "'Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But they hardened their hearts, and could not endure his presence. Therefore the Lord, in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness.' which rest is the fullness of his glory. Therefore he took Moses out of their midst, and the holy priesthood also, and the lesser priesthood continued, and the law of carnal commandments, which the Lord in his wrath caused to continue with the house of Aaron among the children of Israel, until John, whom God raised up, being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. This is speaking of John the Baptist. According to this, God caused, because of his wrath, the law of carnal commandments to continue with the priesthood of Aaron. So, this is essentially a curse. But it goes on to say it continued only until John. I believe the law of the lineal priesthood attached to it, whose purposes had to do with the temple and daily sacrifices, came to its conclusion, being rejected by God, With the coming of John. John would then prepare the people to receive the message that I believe Israel could have received at Mount Sinai had they prepared themselves and desired to have the same relationship with God that Moses had. They were, after all, invited to do so, but they rejected God and made it known they desired that God not speak to them, but that Moses be their go between instead. And even with that, their hearts were turned back to Egypt, and they went and made for themselves an idol. And Aaron was the man who made it. Understand that because there may be truth in this revelation, it does not automatically follow that this revelation is from God. I know that may be a new thought for some of you, but even if parts of it did originate from God, It is possible that between 1832, when it was originally given, and 1835, when it was printed, that it may have been tampered with. The other two major revelations on priesthood, for example, were greatly altered from the Book of Commandments, having had large portions of text added to it. One thing we need to be aware of is that Satan knows that we have built within us a capability to recognize truth when we hear it. And so he has always included truths, even going so far as to reveal mysteries previously unknown when necessary. Because he knows he must bait the trap, it becomes very difficult to separate out what is true and what is not when truth and lies are mixed together. And Satan will give us as high a level of truth as we need so that we will buy the lie attached to it. He knows if he can get you to buy the whole package, whether it comes in the form of a book, a revelation, or a teaching, that we will likely accept it as a whole." Getting back to the Baptist, John's parents had dedicated him to the Lord, but John did not continue in the lineal priesthood of Aaron. He was not ordained by other priests after the order of Aaron. Instead, He received a greater priesthood or ministry than that administered among the Levites and the priests of Aaron. I believe he was a priest after the order of the Son of God, even as we find in the Book of Mormon. His ministry parallels that of every priest of this order that we read about. The teaching and understanding we have is that the Aaronic priesthood is a temporal priesthood, meaning temporary, not forever but it is only for a season. Therefore, we should not expect it to continue forever. It had a distinct beginning, starting with Aaron and the law of Moses in God's wrath, and it would therefore have a distinct ending. I believe that John's birth would ultimately herald the end of this priesthood. John was chosen and ordained before he was even born, And having been prophesied by the prophet isaiah as the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord while his ministry was certainly preparatory in nature it is only in the traditions of the latter-day saints according to questionable revelation that we are told that john's ministry was of the priesthood of aaron as we learned from the book of mormon in the previous episode of this podcast series The priesthood of Melchizedek, which is after the order of the Son of God, is spoken of preparing the way and pointing to Christ. John did not take up the priesthood of Aaron, as we have erroneously been taught, but I would submit to you that he was instead a priest ordained after the order of the Son of God, the same as Alma and Nephi in the Book of Mormon. Their ministries are similar they cried repentance and preached about what people needed to do in order to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And as Alma told us, they were called of God so that, quote, thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to the Lamb of God for redemption, end quote. Search your heart and let us reason together. I think it can be stated unequivocally that the prophets of God, both in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, men like Isaiah, Alma, Moses, Jeremiah, Nephi, and Elijah, were not of the Aaronic priesthood. Knowing that, let us read what Jesus states about John the Baptist in Luke 7.28. For I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. If John was the greatest prophet who ever lived, even greater than Moses, according to Jesus. How can anyone possibly believe that John was a lesser priesthood than the prophets? Additionally, we read in the Bible that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Luke one fifteen through 15-17. Let me ask you, was the ministry of Elijah of the Aaronic Priesthood? Set aside the programming of the church, which has blinded us and simply look at the Word of God as written in the two records that God gave us to resolve these kinds of issues, to correct our stumbling, even the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and then ask the Lord to reveal the truth of it to you. Remember, the entire church came under condemnation by 1832 for treating the Book of Mormon lightly. By 1834, And without any evidence of repentance, we suddenly found ourselves with the idea that the Aaronic Priesthood has been restored to the Church? For what purpose? I know this is a lot to absorb and consider, but it isn't the only issue with the Aaronic Priesthood. Let's watch this clip from HemlockKnots.com and the Restored Gospel Podcast.
1: either I brought up or you did, but I, we've talked about with my friends, where is the need for an ironic priesthood post-Jesus Christ dying and being sacrificed as the Lamb of God for our sins? But the question is, where where is the word ironic priesthood or Melchizedek in the Book of Mormon, and how did these things come to be? So talk to me about what you've kind of researched in priesthood. The Book of Mormon doesn't talk about the ironic priesthood. It doesn't talk about Aaron. It doesn't talk about... Um, anything like that in that terminology? Now, some people will say, "Well, Jesus gave people authority or power to baptize." Was, yes, he did give a certain amount of people a job to baptize and to to teach and to do a bunch of things. But you know, the the holy order is spoken of by Alma in, in chapter thirteen, right? And it's likened unto you know Melchizedek and Christ, and it's after that order after the Son of God. Um, that's the only type of priesthood that I'm aware of that's, that's mentioned in the book of Mormon is the high priesthood, the the real priesthood, I would call it, you know, the, the holy order. Um, and that's just sanctified individuals that are, that are part of the the Christ church. You know, um, there's nothing about Aaron or anything like that in the book of Mormon, this timeline, you know, biblical scholars are, from what I can tell, they're, they're in consensus as far as where the ideas came from in the, in the old Testament, where, the priesthood of Aaron was established among the Levites and they were a chosen people. They were independent from the tribes. They got no inheritance. The Levites initially got no inheritance. Um, and you read why in, in Genesis, the end of it, they were, they were pretty evil people. Um, and Jacob wrote them out of the will. So the JEPD source you see at the very bottom, that's the Old Testament, the Pentateuch as we have it now. That was not compiled until about 450 BCE. And so our Old Testament does not go back to Adam. It does not go back to Moses. It doesn't go back to King David. It doesn't go back to any of this stuff except for around the time of Ezra in the Old Testament. So this is a relatively new conglomeration of writings that came together. And you see that this P source over here came after 722 BCE, right? After the exile. And so this is a, a new source, and this P source is the one that's entirely responsible for going back into the story and writing in Aaron as some equivalent to Moses. They say that Aaron is Moses's brother. No other source, the J, the E, the D, any of these other sources that are actually older than P, none of those sources mention Aaron at all, except for as an idolater and as someone who rebelled against Moses, right? And Miriam, Miriam's sister um, Miriam's brother, Aaron, and they were, she was smitten with leprosy and there's all these issues with Moses, right? These power struggles. Um, but the peace source, when it comes around, um, some some would, most would even argue that that source did not exist until after Lehi left Jerusalem. So this is how new this idea is of the Aaronic priesthood. That could be why it's never mentioned in the book of Mormon, because that piece of history hadn't even been written yet. They literally fabricated a story about Aaron, most likely, being um, co-equal to Moses, you know, Moses went up on the mountain with Aaron. Um, Aaron, you know, Aaron's rod had magical powers. Um, the idea that Aaron's descendants were in charge of the priestly duties at the temple and that they did all the sacrifices. Everybody was to pay tithing, and only the people of Levi were to benefit from that tithing, right? People would come and offer up, you know, meat sacrifices at the temple, and then you know they'd have to give a certain portion to the priests. So there's all this weird stuff that happens in the priestly source, and it's isolated entirely to the priestly source, which largely wrote like over 99% of the, the Book of Leviticus was written by this priestly source. So the feast days, the holidays, the holy days, the uh, the sacrifices, all the rituals, you know, all the temple worship stuff. Um, largely came from this priestly source, which came probably after Lehi left Jerusalem. So perhaps written by some of the very uh, the Levitical priests themselves? Or... Yes. So here you have the blue portion. Can you see on the screen? The blue yeah. The blue portion is the portion of the, um, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The, look at the blue portion here. That's the priestly source that was written probably somewhere... You know, as late as 450 BCE, give or take, and as early as maybe, you know, 700 BCE. You know, people, scholars will argue about where exactly that was that was created, but they do agree in general that it came after the Deuteronomist source. And that was a, a major problem when there was a reformation um, and the Deuteronomists, you know, their law was, was kind of added and expanded upon and, and things changed as far as the affairs of the kingdom. So look at this blue source here. The oldest source is the J source, the red one. And then the second oldest is the E source, the green one. And now you've got the priestly source, which dominates most of the end of the five books of Moses, as far as the rituals and the sacrifices and all the technicalities. Um, but that's the same source that went in into the book of Genesis. Nope. Whoops. I mean, Exodus and made Aaron a hero. They made him a holy man. Whereas before, um, the J source and the E source, they don't talk about Aaron in the same way. In fact, they don't even mention that Aaron is Moses's brother. Now, here's something that's really interesting. The priestly source in blue, this was written by priests in Jerusalem that were claiming to be the, de- the descendants of Aaron. Of course, they had an incentive to say that Aaron was the chosen lineage that was in charge of the, the priesthood and the temple, Right. And so these people had everything to gain by changing history to where they were the chosen lineage, but if you go back to Jacob and the records in J and E and, and Jacob's patriarchal blessings in the end of Genesis, the Levites were not looked upon favorably at all. In fact, you know Aaron was known in those sources as an idolater, built the golden calf, you know. And so I have um, some major questions about the Aaronic priesthood um, simply because, you know, you study the history of it and and, and how we got those writings and it's just nefarious at best. It's not a good thing. And I think that some people in the early dispensation, Sidney Rigdon, especially, he was a huge fan of the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Um, Oliver Cowdery was, he was kind of aspiring to be the one likened to Moses and be Aaron, you know, and he actually changed one of the sections about him, the revelation and, and made some edits there. Study the history there and see how those have been altered and changed as well. So, You know, long story short, this dispensation we have recently with Joseph Smith, there was nothing about the Aaronic Priesthood at all in any of the church history up until October 1834. That's when Oliver Cowdery first makes mention of it in the Messenger and the Advocate. And if you read most of the Genesis stuff going into early Exodus, you can see how this P source in blue heavily was obsessed with Aaron. They wrote about Aaron constantly. Uh, Aaron's, the sons of Aaron are, you know, the chosen one. And I mean, it was just self-serving at best, you know, Uh, but all of the other historical writers, they had no idea that Aaron was anything special. They had a heavy incentive, I think to flip the script and to get them in charge of, uh, the pot of gold inside the temple, you know, very profitable. this is a theocracy. Remember political and religious power were associated. They were joined at the hip. The book of Mormon speaks
0: extensively about Moses and the great things he did for the people of Israel. But curiously, It never once mentions Aaron. It is also recorded that the Nephites kept the law of Moses, but never once mentions the Aaronic priesthood. Lehi and his family would have left Jerusalem before these additions were made by the priestly group. They would have taken their knowledge of the scriptures from the brass plates instead. As was alluded to in the video segment, many scholars now believe that portions of the Pentateuch may have been corrupted as the priestly, or peace source, appears to have added large amounts of text to it around four to five hundred BCE, immediately after the Babylonian exile, which includes large portions of the book of Leviticus. Among the other things added, besides expanding considerably upon the offerings and the sacrifices required by God, which set up the descendants of Aaron as the primary beneficiaries. The priestly source also elevated the original station of Aaron by inserting text into the book of Exodus, claiming that Aaron was the brother of Moses. Before these changes were made, the Pentateuch or Torah did not reveal Aaron and Miriam to be the siblings of Moses. If Moses and Aaron were brothers, as the Bible now claims, thanks to additions to the Pentateuch by the priestly group, That would make Moses a Levite. And yet, the Book of Mormon appears to indicate that Moses was a descendant of Joseph of Egypt, not a Levi. Again, the Nephites would have had no knowledge of the corruption that took place in the text of the Pentateuch, as it occurred after they left Jerusalem and after the Babylonian captivity. Lehi and his family would have taken their knowledge from the brass plates instead. The Bible appears to indicate that God did not ask for or desire a permanent temple to be built, just as he never wanted the Israelites to have a king, but men insisted, so he allowed them to do it. The reason why I believe God was content with the tent of the tabernacle is because it was an indication that this situation was a temporary one, not permanent, even as the priesthood of Aaron would have been a temporary one the tabernacle was only necessary because of the sin of Israel, when they rejected a personal relationship with God and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and chose instead idolatry. Because of this sin, there was a separation between man and God, and there was also the law and a sacrifice required until Christ would fulfill the law and rend the veil The Book of Leviticus, most of which appears to have been added by the priestly group after the exodus from Babylon, really seems to confuse things with the blood of bulls and birds, etc. If the Jews had kept the simplicity of the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish, how much clearer a picture of Christ it would have been. But as the Book of Mormon stated, the Jews despised the plain and simple truths and sought for things they could not understand, and because of this they were delivered over to delusion, and there arose the great and abominable church of the Jews. I recall years ago, when looking at certain issues I found in the Bible, and asking the Lord concerning changes that may have been made by the great and abominable church of Rome, the thought was impressed into my mind, what about the great and abominable church of the Jews. I believed this was the Holy Spirit, and that was a completely new thought which arose in my mind once I looked at the topic. To whatever extent that the tabernacle, sacrifice, and priesthood may have been set up by God among the Israelites, it was changed over time and became corrupted, even as the Church of the Restoration did. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he faced off Not with the priests of God and a pure religion, but with the church of the devil. His teachings and the miracles he performed were a disruption to the church of Satan, and he was put to death for it. I came to the realization, even as the Book of Mormon indicates, that since there are really only two churches, it isn't just the Catholic Church, but any institution, past, present, and future, that does not reflect the true nature of Christ is a part of the Great and Abominable Church. In the future, I would like to share more about these changes to the Torah or the Pentateuch, but especially the exciting news regarding the Moses Scrolls, which appear to be older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. First discovered in the 1880s, they were initially thought to be a forgery. However, more and more scholars are now refuting that as a rush to judgment and are showing evidence that points to these scrolls as being authentic. This would make them the oldest version of Deuteronomy in existence, purporting to be the very writings of Moses and the law of God as originally given, uncorrupted by any source material later added to the Bible. Nowhere in this ancient text does it lift up Aaron or his descendants Nor does it reveal that God ever gave the Israelites instructions regarding sacrifices and burnt offerings after they left Egypt. The law given by God in these scrolls is so much more simplistic and it speaks to the matters of the heart in loving God and loving our neighbor. Once again, we see compelling evidence that one of the primary ways Satan takes away from the word of God is to add to it and thereby complicate and confuse the truth. It does appear that Satan managed to add a fair amount of text to the Pentateuch and to the Torah, the law of God, and by doing so, essentially buried or made more obscure the plain and simple truth. This is why the Book of Mormon was specifically brought forth, because its words were designed to be simple and plain to the understanding of men satan tried to take words away from the book of mormon in the loss of the 116 pages but god saw fit to replace them with text from the plates of nephi which covered the same history as the book of lehi we did not get satan also could not add words to the book of mormon itself but he did add another book of doctrines and laws and mysteries that would ultimately distract us from the plain truths found in the Book of Mormon. When we get around to covering the topic of the Bible in a future episode of the podcast, we will see that statements made by prophets like Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah which say that God never spoke to the Israelites or gave them any commandment concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, it will finally begin to make sense to us. Assuming you have ever read those verses and wondered about them, we will discover that the sacrifice made by Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and also made by the Israelites on that first Passover in Egypt, and every Passover thereafter, that of a lamb without blemish, may be the only animal sacrifice ever truly sanctioned by God, and that the real requirement that God had placed upon the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt was simply to be obedient to his voice. This according to the prophets, not because I believe it to be so. The only other sacrifice than the lamb which God required was that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It will be a lot of fun getting into that topic, as it should be a real eye-opener. I think it may also answer questions some of you may have had regarding some of the laws and the requirements found in the book of Leviticus. Getting back to our topic in regards to the priesthood, what we find in the Book of Mormon is that there is no mention of the Aaronic Priesthood anywhere in the book. However, As we discussed in the previous episode, Alma devotes a couple of pages of text to tell us about the nature of priesthood. The only time the word priesthood is used is to denote those who obtain the office of high priest, also known as priests after the order of Melchizedek and after the order of the Son of God. As far as I can tell from both the Bible and and the Book of Mormon, there is no other office of Melchizedek Priesthood except High Priest. Alma lets us know that those who obtained this priesthood obtained it directly from God Himself and no man, and that they were called to prepare the people for the coming of Christ, so that they look for the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, thereby making the Melchizedek Priesthood a preparatory ministry, and a type and shadow of Christ himself, standing in stark contrast to what is written in the Doctrine and Covenants. Since it was the purpose of this priesthood to be a type and shadow which pointed to the Lamb of God, it stands to reason that once Christ arrived on the scene, there would be no more need for this priesthood. Like the Law of Moses, it would have been fulfilled. And sure enough, this is exactly what appears to take place when Nephi, being the last high priest mentioned in the Book of Mormon, is rebaptized and becomes an elder and one of the twelve disciples in 3rd Nephi. After the coming of Christ, there is never again any mention of the high priests or the Melchizedek priesthood, nor any mention of any priesthood at all. Except that Christ himself took up the mantle of the high priesthood on our behalf, performing the final sacrifice. He is now the only high priest we are to look for, since the whole point of men serving in this role was to point to Christ. Now that Christ has come, if we make a covenant with him, and if he abides in us, that means we carry the priesthood within us to the extent that we do the will of Christ according to the leadings of his spirit. In other words, it is not us, but Christ in us who does the work. We are merely his body. He is the head. What we do find in the church of the new covenant is that certain men were ordained or called and set aside to perform certain specific ministries. However, these ministries are never called priesthood. I believe we must point out that we also find women performing various ministries in the scriptures and working in all of the gifts. Therefore, we must conclude that they also have ministry in the body of Christ. In examining the scriptures, the ministry of men and women do appear to be different or unique from each other in some key areas. Although they are not the same, they are also very similar in other ways. There are female prophets. As we have previously pointed out, there was a female judge. Priscilla performed the work of one of the 70 alongside her husband. We will get more into this topic in a future episode of the podcast, as there is some exciting new information on the ministry of men and women, and I believe the Lord will further clarify this to all of us as we work through these issues together. Having stated this, let's take a moment to rewind history, starting at the foundation of the church, and let us build up from there, summarizing the highlights from the series as we build to its conclusion. So forget what you know or think you know. Set aside the traditions of the church and the historical narratives that have been repeated over the years, which were designed to sweep all questions and concerns under the carpet in order to paint a more rosy picture. We'll begin at the one true foundation, which is Jesus Christ, God made flesh. He was born as a man, performed his ministry, taught his doctrine and his gospel message to mankind. Jesus then died and rose again. The new covenant is now established in the work that Christ did on our behalf. Afterward, Jesus visited the Nephites, where he taught the same doctrine and gospel as he taught at Jerusalem only being able to do so from the perspective of having already accomplished the work of the cross and the resurrection. This allowed him to be more open and direct about his mission and what it more fully meant. He delivers a more condensed, concise version of his message since, unlike the Jews, these are the more righteous people who are left after a cataclysm. This is one of the reasons why the Book of Mormon makes such a great companion to the Bible. Because if there is anything that is not perfectly clear, or may be left up to interpretation in the Bible, this record does an excellent job of making those things very plain to the understanding of men, and this is by design. Over time, the church that Christ established in Jerusalem moved away from being a spiritual institution and became an earthly institution, and soon fell into apostasy revealing the formation of that great and abominable church. Perversions were made to the doctrine of Christ. Pagan practices and holidays were added to Christian practice. The word of God was not even available to the public. Only the priest had a copy, and the priest would read from the Bible in a language that the common man could not understand. Nonbelievers, so-called heretics, and Jews were tortured and killed in order to, quote, save them. So, we see that the Church of the Devil is fully established, and we enter into the Dark Ages, and the true Church flees into the wilderness. God sent humanity help, though, with the invention of the printing press and the Bible becoming available to more than just the priests of the Catholic Church. Now that people could read the scriptures for themselves, a Protestant Reformation movement began. Out of that Reformation, many churches were formed, since disputes arose over time on how best to interpret the meaning of the Bible text. Preachers would disagree on the requirements of salvation or what men should do to please God. As a result, many schisms arose in Christianity. A record was then brought forth out of the ground, and a means to interpret that record by the gift and power of God. One of the purposes of this record was to help us, the Gentiles, because we stumbled greatly over how best to interpret the Bible. The Book of Mormon being very easy to understand clarified or made plain the truth of the gospel and the doctrine of Christ. At this point, the understanding given to Joseph and others was that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was their primary focus and purpose and that the knowledge contained in that record would help recover the seed of Lehi and herald the restoration of the whole house of Israel. While the Book of Mormon was being translated, God plainly told Joseph Smith and others through a revelation received by way of the Yerm Thummon, also called the interpreters by the Nephites, that, quote, he, Joseph Smith, has a gift to translate the book And I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift. Please note that by 1830, ignoring the instructions given in the early revelations, they ordained Joseph a prophet, seer, revelator, and president of the church, which, much like the pope, was set up to become the head of the church, to stand in the stead of Christ. The early revelations given by the gift and power of God would later be changed to support this new direction. In the book of 3 Nephi, Book of Mormon, Christ declares his doctrine with great plainness, which is the doctrine the Father had given him, which he states is the only doctrine that is in him. After stating his doctrine, he concluded by saying, And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, The same cometh of evil, thereby placing a firm period at the end of his statement of doctrine, warning us that it is an act of evil to add anything to it and declare it to be his doctrine, and that hell stands ready to receive any who try to do so. At this point, the doctrine of Christ is in full harmony with what we find in the New Testament. However, by 1835, the church would publish an entire book of a traditional doctrines, claiming to have been given by Christ, which was called the Doctrine and Covenants. This in spite of the fact that the Lord told them that the Book of Mormon would contain the fullness of Christ's teachings, His only doctrine, and that it was to restore a knowledge of the covenants that had been lost or forgotten. The Bible and the Book of Mormon were prophesied to grow together to become one in our hands unto the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace, so that they who erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. The Book of Mormon tells us that the things which were written in the Book of Mormon should be kept for the instruction of my people who should possess the land. That's us. The early restored church was instructed to rely upon the things written in the Book of Mormon, quote, For in them are all things written concerning my church, my gospel, and my rock, end quote. There is no mention of the Aaronic priesthood in the Book of Mormon, and the only use of the word priesthood anywhere is before Christ comes, and it is in reference to the high priests after the order of Melchizedek, or the order of the Son of God, which was to point to Christ who would come. Once Jesus appeared to the Nephites, there is no more mention of the priesthood in this book that the Lord gave us. While Joseph had the Urim and Thummim, also called the interpreters by the Nephites, a number of revelations were received through it, which were personal instructions to certain men. In three of those revelations, God expressly warned them not to publish those revelations. However, they later published those same revelations. On the first attempt to do so, the printing press was destroyed and the saints were run out of Jackson County, even as David Whitmer had prophesied would happen if they should print those revelations. Undeterred by this, the church would later go on to print those revelations and even modify the very words of God before printing them in 1835 as the Doctrine and Covenants. By the time this was accomplished, the church had been under condemnation for nearly three years. I would argue that the church had, by 1835, been handed over to their errors and the consequences of them. By this time, Satan had effectively joined the Restoration, and secret combinations began to be had among them. The Book of Mormon revealed that if we would not treat the things written in the Book of Mormon lightly, that in time other records written by other tribes would come forth, but that those records would simply testify to the truth of the first records, not add new doctrines, as the Doctrine and Covenants does, or other records such as the Book of Abraham has done. Furthermore, the Book of Mormon stated that the sealed part of the Book of Mormon would not be brought forth in a time of wickedness or abominations. Since then, however, numerous books have been produced by declared prophets, purporting to be the sealed portion of the record, despite the fact that we are still in a time of wickedness and abominations, and yet people still fall for them. Is this not treating the words written in the Book of Mormon lightly? Chapter 4 of the 1833 Book of Commandments stated that, If the people of this generation harden not their hearts, I will work a reformation among them, And I will put down all lyings and deceivings and priestcrafts and envyings and strifes and idolatries and sorceries and all manner of iniquities. And I will establish my church like unto the church which was taught by my disciples in the days of old. In other words, God stated that he would establish the church to be like the one found in the New Testament and among the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. This whole paragraph, the very words of God, were simply deleted when republished in 1835. David Whitmer points out that this must surely have been done because the church they ended up with by 1835 is very different from the one Christ established in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. From 1829 until 1834, men were ordained to serve as elders, priests, and teachers. That's it which are the same ministries as found in the Book of Mormon. Both the Bible and the Book of Mormon plainly testify of a two-in-one, not a three-in-one or a four-in-one, revealing that it is the Bible and the Book of Mormon alone that we should look to. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hands." Additionally, revelation given to the church stated that the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are found in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in which is the fullness of the gospel. They were not instructed to preach or teach from a third book, nor from any of the revelation various men of the church had received, nor were they told to go about preaching Zion, as many of them went on to do. Neither were they to preach that Joseph Smith was a prophet, or that the church had been restored, or talk about the restoration of the priesthood. Instead, they were commanded to preach nothing but repentance and the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ using the Bible and the Book of Mormon alone. Evidence shows that they failed to do this, and this would continue to be a basic failure of every Mormon faction thereafter. During the first five years of the church, from 1828 until near the end of 1834, never was the word priesthood used to describe any of the callings to ministry, nor was anyone aware that there was any such thing as the Aaronic Priesthood, much less it had been restored by John the Baptist. Nor did anyone know about the Melchizedek Priesthood, or that Peter, James, and John had restored it. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery's theology, up until this point, did not appear to encompass the need for a literal bestowal or restoration of priesthood power by resurrected beings in order for church elders to be called and ordained to preach repentance, baptism for remission of sins, or in order to receive the endowment of spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. These gifts were enjoyed without any such knowledge. When Joseph and Oliver first made mention of their angelic ordinations in late 1834 and early 1835, they were facing a credibility crisis that threatened the church's very survival. In late 1833, a group in Kirtland, Ohio denounced Joseph Smith for ministering under pretense of divine authority, simultaneously finding disillusionment spreading among the saints which was only exasperated by problems associated with the failure of Zion's camp, the paramilitary trek to assist fellow saints in Missouri, Joseph and Sidney Rigdon began expending energy preaching against these charges. It was under these circumstances that Joseph mentioned for the first time in public that his priesthood had been, quote, "...been conferred upon me by the ministering of the angel of God." End quote. Another difficulty the church faced was that in 1834, a book had been published making accusation about Joseph Smith being a fraudster. In response, Oliver Cowdery, with Joseph's assistance, decided to write in order to dispute those charges. Oliver's first published response in October of 1834, Messenger and Advocate, included the first ever narrative of him and Joseph being ordained by an unnamed angel. Keep in mind that at this point, the church had been under condemnation, according to a revelation from God, for three years now, with no hint of repentance on the part of the church. Neither was there ever a public lifting of that condemnation spoken of in any revelation thereafter. Although Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery would later claim that Peter, James, and John conferred upon them the Melchizedek priesthood on the banks of the Susquehanna River, it is a verifiable fact that both of these men failed to testify of this to anyone else, including other members of the church and their own family. Nor did they record anything about the appearance of John the Baptist or any restoration of priesthood by angelic entities in any publication prior to 1834, five years after the events purportedly took place. Nor did they ever explain to men who were ordained to offices in the church up to that point that they were receiving any kind of priesthood. Nobody in or out of the church has ever known the exact date of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, and Oliver Cowdery was inconsistent in describing which heavenly beings had come to confer that authority. In fact, Joseph Smith and other early members had previously stated that the very first conferral of the Melchizedek priesthood happened in June of 1831 in Ohio at a conference of elders, and that Joseph himself was ordained to the high priesthood by church elder Lyman White. These types of contradictions bring to question the reality of what really took place. In 1834, Joseph, with the help of Sidney Rigdon, began modifying the earlier revelations given to them by God. Thus, by degrees, the accounts of priesthood evolved to become more detailed and miraculous. David Whitmer and others testified that the stories regarding the restoration about the priesthood appeared to be a tall tale and that they were not aware of any miraculous appearances, except in the case where they were made witness to the plates, stating that none of these events or teachings were previously disclosed or known in the Church. The newly revised version of the revelations that included the new narrative about priesthood restoration by angelic visitations were not published until 1835. David Whitmer testified that the whole matter of priesthood was an invention of Sidney Rigdon, and that he convinced Joseph Smith of it. Joseph was repeatedly warned Behold, how oft you have transgressed the commandments and the laws of God, and have gone on to the persuasions of men. Behold, thou art Joseph, and thou wast chosen to do the work of the Lord. Having been given in 1828, this revelation would be speaking of the translation of the Book of Mormon. But because of transgression, if thou art not aware, thou wilt fall. Based on the known facts, I submit for your consideration that God planted good wheat in the field of the restored Church by bringing forth the Book of Mormon and the doctrine of Christ in its purity. But under the cover of darkness, Satan snuck in and planted doctrinal tares. Satan had tried unsuccessfully to prevent the Book of Mormon from coming forth by stealing the 116 pages. God brought forth the plates of Nephi to supplement what Joseph Smith had already translated, covering the history that was missing. Knowing that he had failed to take away from the Word of God, Satan did the next best thing by adding to the Word of God. Through a sundry of revelations and mysteries and contradictory doctrines which served as a distraction, which the saints became addicted to, causing them soon to forget the precious truths of the Book of Mormon that were given to serve as the primary foundation for doctrine they treated the Book of Mormon lightly, which had been brought forth to confound false doctrines, lay down contention, established the church to be like unto the church which was taught by Christ's disciples in the days of old, and establish peace among them. So instead, they ended up with a church that was quite different from the one found in the Bible or in the Book of Mormon, They had also treated lightly the new covenant that Jesus established according to his doctrine through his work at the cross and the resurrection. The church added to the doctrine of Christ and became enamored by what they imagined to be bigger and better mysteries. And because of this, corruption entered in and the whole church came under condemnation. I would also submit for your consideration that Joseph may indeed have fallen even as God warned him and others would happen if he continued to give in to the persuasions of men. In the struggle to keep the church from faltering and to defend against his enemies, it appears at some point it became acceptable in his mind to introduce a fable in the restoration of the Aaronic in the Melchizedek Priesthood by angelic visitors. The justification for this was to bolster Joseph's claim of authority and soothe the disappointments of the saints due to the various disasters that continued to befall them. It seems that the church had come out from under the protection of the Lord, and they were suffering because of their sins. But instead of repentance, claims were made to bolster the faith of the saints artificially. The high priests of the Old Testament had pointed the way to Christ Their priesthood was simply a type and shadow of Christ to come, even as Alma stated, revealing to others in what manner to look for the coming of the Lamb of God. And when Christ came in the meridian of time, he took on that priesthood himself and fulfilled its ultimate purpose. He fulfilled the purpose of the priesthood the same as he fulfilled the purpose of the law. Now that Christ abides in us, and we abide in him, having the Holy Spirit within us. Every single member of the body of Christ, both men and women, now carry that royal priesthood within them. They carry the priesthood within them because Christ is in them. If this is so, then what do we say about the role of ministry in the church? The church of the new covenant is composed of members of the body of Christ. With each member of the body fulfilling its own purpose and function. No part is more important than the other. All are equal, inasmuch as they are guided by the true Head, who is Christ, through the workings of the Holy Spirit. And because of this, every member of the body has a ministry to perform. Some may minister in small, quiet ways, some may be asked by the Lord to teach or to preach the gospel. Some may be used to prophesy. Some may serve in a pastoral position. Some are used to heal the sick. Some may be used to cast out demons and help deliver people from satanic influences, while others may be asked to perform ordinances like baptism. If God calls upon someone to serve in a distinct form of ministry, we may be directed to ordain, or in other words, set aside, that person, thereby publicly showing, even as baptism is a public display, that we, as a body, are willing to accept that ministry and ask for a blessing to be placed upon the one called into that work. However, the authority to perform that ministry does not come from any man. But it is God alone who bestows the actual authority, even as it is He who actually baptizes us with fire in the Holy Ghost, regardless of whether or not someone lays hands upon us. Authority is given the moment the Lord calls out to an individual, asking them to serve Him, and they respond to His voice in the affirmative. Both men and women can serve God and perform ministry, though men and women have distinct kinds of ministries. The ministry of men and women do differ from one another in many ways, but they also share some similarities. This is something we will cover in much more detail in a later episode of the podcast, as additional light and truth has since come forth from the Lord to both myself and others on this topic. Getting back to the priesthood, David Whitmer, testified to the following. This matter of priesthood since the days of Sidney Rigdon has been the great hobby and stumbling block of the Latter-day Saints. And quoting my friend and brother in Christ, Todd Peterson, pining for priesthood exclusive authority has been the great game of the Saints ever since Satan first joined the Restoration Movement. As a disclaimer, by quoting my brother, it is not my intention to implicate him as having signed off on everything I have shared in this series, though I have shared with him and others that I trust to hear from God. It is important for us to share with others the revelations we receive from God as we are able, so as to get feedback, seek correction, or receive further light and understanding. For as the Apostle Paul wrote, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So to conclude this episode, what I have ultimately come to believe, the thing I believe the Lord has worked with me to reveal, is that many good and honorable men have served God under the belief that they held priesthood. And God worked with such men inasmuch as they humbly served with pure intentions. The very notion of priesthood under the new covenant, which appears to have been fabricated in 1834, was at that time, and remains to this day, a possible form of priestcraft, even if no sin is intentionally committed by the men who were ordained. It is, after all, our traditions that we do so. It is how we have been taught. It is the error and the traditions of our fathers. Many good and righteous men, like my grandfather, labored for the Lord and his people because they loved him. God responded to this desire to serve, in spite of any error regarding ideas about the priesthood. This is because God does not hold us responsible for errors committed in ignorance. I believe with all my heart that God called upon them to serve him, whether as a teacher or an elder or a deacon, etc. If notions of priesthood that Joseph Smith published are wrong, that does not negate the service of good men who serve the Lord. But when a group of people find themselves under such errors, there must inevitably come a time when, in order to move forward, that error must be revealed. And when it is revealed, only then are we held responsible if we fail to repent. The belief in priesthood, as it has been taught in the Restoration Churches, is, I believe, not only an error, but it may, under the terms of the new covenant, become a form of idolatry within the various Mormon factions. It sets up men as a light, and thereby fosters a dependency on the part of the membership to look to them for their answers. Not enough focus has been given to teaching the membership how to work in the gifts of the Spirit and go directly to God for themselves, to allow the voice of the Spirit to reveal the will of God for the body, by way of the body, in the gifts of the Spirit to the members of the body of Christ. To the degree that people were taught to ask God, the correct answers had already been decided for them. And if the answer they received is different from that which is endorsed by the church institution, they are told to defer to the instruction of the brethren. Instead of allowing the word of God to be poured out upon the body membership in the mouth of multiple witnesses, people are taught to look to a man who seeks to stand in the stead of Christ for our direction as a body. It is because of this notion of priesthood that, for some of us, Church gatherings became a kind of performance, a show, where priesthood members take the center stage, high and lifted up, while the members of the body of Christ are relegated to the role of adoring audience. I would be negligent if I did not also point out that the idea of priesthood under the new covenant is also one of the great barriers that has prevented women from being able to play a greater role in the church and stand as equals in Christ Jesus. In fact, the very nature of the teaching about priesthood suppresses much of the ministry that Christ would otherwise do through non-priesthood members of the body, both men and women, and seeks to invalidate or minimize the value of the work and ministry performed in other Christian churches. But in the end, it is not for me to tell you how you should believe about this. I believe it is my responsibility only to share what I have learned. It is now up to you to search these things out and go to God for your answer. In the final analysis, I believe that if we Gentiles will repent and go back to what God originally told us and make it a serious study to find out what the Book of Mormon is really telling us and forsake the traditions of men that cause us to remain in our error, that we can be numbered among the seed of Lehi and as part of the house of Israel. Only then can we take our place and join them in the building of the new Jerusalem and assist in the great gathering of all those who have a personal relationship with Christ, not just those who are part of a faction of the restoration, who have joined as members of some earthly institution to profess belief in Joseph Smith as a prophet. I know this was a lot to lay on you, but my recommendation is that you turn to the Book of Mormon, that great gift the Lord saw fit to correct our stumbling, along with the Bible, and take the Holy Spirit as your companion to help you read the words contained therein, as if reading them for the first time. Ask God to help you remove the invisible eyeglasses that filter the scriptures through the traditions of the church so that seeing, you may comprehend the truth. In my opinion, the end result of seeking the truth and then abiding in it, breaking free of our false traditions, would be that our gatherings should truly be like in the days of old, as we worship in spirit and in truth, where the gifts are poured out in abundance among all of the membership, where we are not gathered merely to hear what some preacher has to say, but where we worship in unison, no one above another, and our focus and attention being placed fully on Christ alone, allowing the Holy Spirit to preside, that we may worship as if the Lord Himself occupied the chamber where we gather, knowing that if we do that, He will be. We'll take a two-week break, and then I'll be back. I need to take a little time to draw apart with the Lord and also fellowship with some dear friends in Christ. Please send comments or questions to teacherinzine at gmail.com. And if I haven't totally offended you yet, I hope you will join us again. Until next time, God bless.